0: Apparently the floor levels used to be different at points, so...
1: Oh, right, so there could be hidden passages and all sorts of... Uh,
0: well, there is. There's definitely tunnels underneath that. We know that. Um, but they're not safe for the public to go down. Um, yeah, but you're although not- I do have a key. You're not the public,
1: I, I was going to say. Yeah. I'm a professional.
0: I do I do have the key to get into this place. So one day I might illegally <laughs> go down there. They, they won't be able to find me one day and I'll be like, Help! Hear in the wall. Ollie's in the well. <laughs>
1: See, at day one that they gave me that key, I would have been in in the underground catacombs just terrifying myself.
0: Me and my manager are going to go climb the roof soon because oh. we've both not done it. So we're going to go on the top of the Great Hall. It's safe, um, right? We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. People go up there all the time, like workmen and stuff. Mm. Um. So, yeah, there's a proper door and stuff that you can go up.
1: I'm very, very jealous of that being your day job now. Yeah, it so
0: it's, bad. it's pretty cool. But, um, yeah, sometimes you forget, like, where you are because sort of I'm in, like, an office, like, based within the house, but you're in there because you're sort of looking at a wall and then you turn around and you're like, oh, I'm in a really old <laughs> building. <laughs> um Yeah, it's cool.
1: Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... This story begins in the Victorian era and the three words to try and help you tease out what it might be. Short, long, multiple...
0: That is no help at all, Joe. Short I, yeah. uh, Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, a Victorian Tom Cruise. Yes. Um, with his long hair. Okay. And multiple wives.
1: No, bigamy's not involved. Oh, damn. I'm sorry about that. We're, we're going up north for this one. Oh, lovely. Because it. James Billington was born in Preston, Lancashire, on March 5th,
0: 1847. That's
1: my dad's birthday. Is it? Mm, yeah. Uh, there you go. And was your dad also born in Preston?
0: Yes. This is, is this about my dad?
1: Did he change his name? Is he 170 years old? Yes. Good. Then, yes, it probably is. Well, James's family were originally from Bolton, actually. And it seems the cosmopolitan flavour of Preston. Uh, It proved to be unnerving and a bit too much so they (laughs) soon moved back to Bolton
0: yeah okay what was Preston like in those days I've been to Preston it was pretty much like
1: all the other northern mill towns it was just another hamlet where you know the weavers and all the people working with um, cottons and cloths and things had just slowly slowly been industrialized and the factories had grown so it's I mean all of them at this point although there are differences in sizes now it was you know all much of a muchness and Bolton was its own it wasn't just you know a bit of Manchester people from Bolton won't let me say that but you know what I mean it was very much a separate place
0: Mm, yeah my friend Sean lives in Bolton and he'd go Mentor yeah and I I apologise
1: because I know it's like when people say Salford's part of Manchester it's its own city it is yes and Bolton is its own entity it's all just part of Greater Manchester now and that's that's, that's the truth of the matter, I'm sorry. Don't blame me for facts. The, yeah, don't blame me for the way the government have rezoned things. <laughs> they put my hometown in Merseyside, so, you know, anything's possible. Anyway, they moved back to Bolton. Basically, they were following the work, I think. And James, he was a child, yes, but he wasn't in any way exempt from work. Uh, and he was soon working in one of the mills as a little piercer, which is uh, someone yeah, also that? known as a scavenger. Oh. I don't know what a big piercer was, but I'm guessing that whatever they were doing was <laughs> making uh, quite a lot of rubbish on the floor, you know, little bits of cloth, things that would be highly flammable. And because all of these bits of highly flammable stuff were piling up under machines that were running at high speed, they needed to get those scraps out.
0: So are these, these the, the people that you see running up and were sort of crawling on their hands and knees? Yeah, like, the kids who up are and up and down. Yeah. yeah,
1: just trying to make sure that all the flammable materials, you know gotten disposed of it was dangerous oh, incredibly dangerous and many many children got caught up in the mechanisms because mm. they didn't turn them off while the kids were under there which would result in maiming if you were lucky death if you were if you were less lucky although some might see as a blessing
0: i was gonna say it might be is it not the other way around <laughs> um being mangled
1: well, sp- uh, yeah <laughs> i guess that is true because then you just you're already on the scrap heap in terms of work at the age of six.
0: Yeah, you'll be put in a bloody asylum somewhere for being infirm or whatever they call it.
1: Yeah, from the PTSD you obviously are experiencing.
0: No, no Health and Safety at Work Act 1974
1: there, was there? I mean, that's not technically true. There have been some reforms. Uh, by this point. I mean, there were very minimal reforms. I think one of them was that the workday for um, children and women couldn't be longer than 14 hours. Oh, well, that that's good. so y- You say no safety at work. I mean, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> compared to, I, d- I don't know, 16 hours? I don't think you could work more than 16 hours.
0: No, you'd, you'd drop down dead, wouldn't you?
1: Well, I mean, there were a lot of people in the north... At this point, Lancashire um, was the second most populous county in the country. Mm. And that had all happened in the space of like 70 years.
0: Yeah, massive growth.
1: But even though he had a steady job, our James, he he wasn't best pleased with the situation. He he didn't really want uh, to just go from being a little piercer to a big piercer uh, and just do that for the next 60 years. So he decided he had to formulate a plan. To get him out of the northern mill towns, to get him a job with a bit more, a bit more about it, a chance to see the rest of the country, to travel, mm. you know, to, to be more than what his dad was, and he decided the best way to do that would be to become an executioner.
0: That's um, a career change.
1: Yeah. Well, he reached his decision at the age of eleven. <laughs> uh, this was eighteen fifty-eight. This was eighteen fifty-eight, and at the time, the main executioner in the country was William Calcraft. A man who used the short drop method of hanging as his preferred mode of dispatch.
0: Okay, I get the short and long bit now, right? Mm.
1: Well, it, to be fair to William, it was still 10 years before public execution stopped being a thing. And it's speculated that he used the short drop mainly because it was more entertaining for the crowds that would sometimes reach about 30,000.
0: Jesus. So
1: there, there are descriptions of he would, you know, hang somebody, that person would start. Um, convulsing because they were slowly being strangled to death. And he would theatrically climb down under the scaffold and start pulling on their legs um, and while the crowd were cheering. So it, it's not, well, it is still cruelty, but I think part of it was he felt he had to be a showman.
0: <laughs> a travelling showman.
1: Oh Yeah, and it, it definitely, you know, sparked the imagination of James. Roll
0: up, roll up.
1: You know, as at the age of 11, he was faithfully recreating the scenes as best he could because he built a homemade gallows in his own back garden, and was busy practicing hanging dummies. Did he
0: torture animals as well?
1: Well, there were rumours that he'd started honing his skills on stray cats and dogs, but oh, these were awesome. these were never substantiated. So it's, it's what you would say about the weird kid. Even and now. it's funny
0: that I get more offended by
1: At the hanging of animals, the
0: hanging of animals than I do about the hanging of people. Maybe Look, that says something about me.
1: It's the alleged hanging of animals, and we have no evidence to say that he actually did. Okay. But, I mean, there were a lot of stray dogs, I should imagine, around at the time. Yes, So The the opportunity was there. Mm. Whether he did, it's lost to history. Unfortunately for James, though, despite all of his practice, he wasn't able to land the position after Calcraft was forced to retire at the age of 74. Jesus. I know, hanging people into your 70s. That's pretty... probably
0: lost his eyesight as well by then.
1: (laughs) I mean, I just think it was one of those, what else am I going to do?
0: Yeah, because, well, I mean, there wasn't anything much to fall back on back then, was there?
1: No, and I'm, um, I'm not sure how much executioners were getting paid at that point, but hmm. it's, you know, go till you drop, pretty much, was his... Literally. Yeah, his plan. Although, that being said, looking through the list of executioners, you know, sort of, like, way, way back, because there was a list from, like, the very first ones that were mentioned, it's surprising how many of them ended up being executed themselves for crimes. And you think if anyone, really? yeah, if anyone was to know better than to you know murder a guy in cold blood in front of witnesses or to steal a horse or whatever, it would be the guys who daily are sort of contemplating the the other end of that sort of decision. Yeah, but, no, but let's let's be
0: honest though. If you're in that profesh- profession, there's yeah. got to be something um, sadistic slightly about you if you are killing people on a daily basis for your job. Then of course you're probably going to. I don't know, stab someone for looking at you funny. Uh,
1: I mean, I think it's either you've got absolutely no empathy or you have a shocking amount of empathy and you want to try and actually do right by people who are... You know, it's not you who's killing them, it's the state that sanctioned it. Um, but, yeah, by this point as well, it, it wasn't like um, Calcraft was hanging people every day. You know, some some years it would only be a dozen people. OK, so it, it's, it was, declined. It had declined massively... Um, you know, through sort of um, the Georgian era. You yeah. know, we were moving away from the bloody code and there were less and less crimes that were attracting the the, the death penalty at this point.
0: Right, yeah.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so he, he retired at the age of 74, did Calcraft. And the job went to a man called William Marwood. But there was cause for hope because Marwood was already 54 when he was hired. So he'd, he got into the game later, Marwood. And he was, he was more of a, less of a showman, uh, more of a thinker. And it was him who developed the long drop method of the execution, which relied on calculating the amount of slack needed in the rope to snap the neck of the prisoner, so death was nearly instantaneous. Hmm. So um, he he was the first one to develop a list of calculations. So if you weighed so much, um, you know it would sort of you should be looking at a rope length of such and such, and you'd you'd work that out before get it all set up, and then hopefully if you'd done it right,
0: yeah, because you'd your drop. Far enough and hard enough for your neck to snap, yeah. wouldn't you?
1: And, and not more, because therein lies other problems that we'll get to. Hmm. So for the next decade, James Billington had to rely on his fallback job. And he had got out of the uh, mills at this point because he trained himself to be a barber. Yes. He married, he had four kids, but all of this was just a distraction. He was just biding his time until he got a chance. Another chance to go for that plum executioner's job.
0: So he hadn't given up on it. I can imagine a barber mm. is um, a well-needed person, like
1: yeah, job. Yeah.
0: And didn't they? Um, didn't they used to do like surgery and stuff uh, at the same time?
1: That that was a bit before before now. I mean, the barber surgeons, yes, that's that's where it started. But by this point, surgeons have gone off and done their own thing, and they have mm. their own exams. You can't just, yeah. <laughs>
0: Just giving men stylish yeah. moustaches and stylish haircuts.
1: I see you need an amputation. Come here, let me have a go at it.
0: <laughs> let me get my secateurs.
1: Snip, oh. snip, snip. Yeah. Yeah. It, do you know a, a cutthroat razor is probably not the job to amputate a leg.
0: I've never used one. They terrify me.
1: It would. It would cut. You know, through the skin, definitely, quite easily, and it probably you'd be able to make it quite quickly through the muscle i think the bone and the cutthroat razor is where you'd you'd hit an issue you need a bone saw there
0: yes you need a full kit of um sharp implements
1: and although he you know he may have been a sadist when it came to animals he never went full sort of you know horror villain and started buying surgical equipment yeah to kill people so yeah he's there he's he's cutting people's hair he's had four kids he's you know living a respectable life and I'm not even sure at this point the woman he married, because it was after he'd last applied, even knew that this was something he wanted to do.
0: (laughs) By the way, love, Mm -hmm. I want to go and hang people for a living.
1: Well, yeah, that that awkward conversation would have happened in September 1883, when William Marwood died. Oh. James applied for the now vacant position, as did 14,000 other people. What? I know. That's how many people in, in England wanted that job. Well, maybe they
0: just wanted a decent wage. <laughs> um,
1: well, he did yeah. quite well, considering the 14,000. He got to the final three interviewees. Good job. Before the job was given to Marwood's old assistant, which makes sense. Someone who's yeah, actually been present yeah. at a proper hanging before. He was a man called Bartholomew Binns.
0: That is an incredible name.
1: It is. Unfortunately, he wasn't that incredible a person. Especially unfortunate for the condemned people of Britain, because it appears that although he was, you know, studying under someone who had pioneered and sort of honed in the long drop method, he hadn't really learnt it. He hadn't listened enough, Mm. because practically every execution he ever performed was botched. That's not what you want. It might have been because he was reported to be perpetually drunk.
0: Well, yeah, that will that will do it.
1: Or possibly because. Prior to assisting um, Marwood, he had definitely only been practicing on dogs and cats. So this Wanker. guy, this guy definitely <laughs> did what what we think James might have done. Bartholomew definitely did.
0: Ah, oh, no, we don't like you anymore.
1: Yeah, um, and as you know, you know the anatomy of a dog and a cat is slightly different to that of a human. Yes, so.
0: yes, we don't go around on all fours. Well, some people do, hmm. I'm sure. Well,
1: whatever the reason, he did eleven. Executions in just five months before he was mercifully fired. Good. Again, though, that leaves two people who got to the interview phase. So it was yes. between James and one other person, and he was passed over for the other person, <sighs> who was called James Berry.
0: So we've got James and James.
1: Yeah, so James James Billington lost out to James Berry, but Billington this time, rather than going and sitting back in his barber shop and waiting for the next opportunity, he had a bit of a brainwave, and he thought, you know. There are surely more hangings to do away from London than Berry can schedule in. Sometimes there's gonna be a double booking. So he decided he'd try his luck and because he was a Lancashire lad, he figured why not go across the border and see if they'll let me execute a Yorkshireman.
0: Of course they will.
1: Yeah, of course they will, they did. <laughs> um He went to speak to the you know, the justices in Yorkshire and they said, Yeah, actually we do have situation where we have someone we need to hang and Barry's not available because he's engaged in london we'll give you a try out
0: amazing yeah
1: so on the morning of the 26th of august 1884 at leeds jail at the age of 37 so he's been wanting to do this for 26 years since he first made the decision he he never gave up
0: follow your dreams james
1: he was he was finally going to get that first tick on his bucket list He was engaged to hang a man called Joseph Laycock who was very deserving of the punishment as he had, you know, clearly, there's no question about whether he did this crime, he had slashed the throats of his wife and four children with a razor blade.
0: Yeah, get him gone.
1: You know, it's one of those where um, neighbours ran in and he was stood still holding the razor blade, covered in the blood, Uh, saying, I'd do it again. So... God. Yeah, you know, open and shut case pretty much. Um, so he's there in the condemned cell and James walked in and while he was pinioning the condemned man, Joseph asked him, you will not hurt me, probably worried having seen the botched executions that, you know, the guy before had been doing a bit concerned that James might want to take some kind of retribution. And with an amazing degree of confidence, considering he'd never hung anyone before, he replied, no, thou will never feel it as they'll be out of existence in two minutes.
0: <laughs> Brilliant.
1: And to be fair to him, he then entirely backed up that statement because within two minutes he had broken Joseph's neck cleanly, killing him almost instantly.
0: Oh, interesting. So he was
1: he was good. He well, he definitely didn't get stage fright that first time up there.
0: He'd been practicing in front of the mirror, hadn't he? <laughs> you know, like when you you listen to like a pop song when you're a kid, and you're like sort of singing in front of the mirror, or like some new metal or something, and. Um, yeah, that's what he's been doing.
1: I don't know if it was that or if it was cramming, you know, like you did before um, tests, like GCSEs, where he just had his wife shouting out weights and he was <laughs> shouting out what the what the length of drop should be. And she's like, yes, <sighs> 10 stone 6. Drinking 20 cans of Red Bull. Yeah, or the equivalent, which, let's face it, was probably just something laced with cocaine. <laughs> this is Victorian Britain.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, they loved a bit of opium, a bit yeah, of cocaine. Cocaine
1: wine, he's just downing it via the flag and load, just shouting out all of these things. Good on him. Um, but despite this perfect demonstration he'd just given, James had to wait another three years before he was given a second engagement with a gentleman called Henry Hobson on August the 22nd, 1887.
0: So he's 40 by this point.
1: Yeah. So by the time he got his second hanging under his belt, he was 40. And there were three years between one and two. But... Oh, what? In the intervening years between his first and second hanging, things hadn't exactly been smooth sailing for James Berry, who in 1885 alone had managed to fail to hang a person.
0: How do you fail to hang a person?
1: Ah, I've, I was hoping that you'd ask that. It was a gentleman called James Baddacombe Lee, and the trap door kept failing to open. So part of the executioner's duty is you turn up the day before the hanging and you inspect all of the apparatus that you're going to be using. So you mm. make sure that everything's working smoothly. You, you Just put the,
0: put the rope around your own neck.
1: Well, no, we'll get to that, but you use a dummy. So what you do is you um. measure out the length that you want. You would tie the noose, and then you would fake hang a dummy to make sure that everything was working, but you'd leave the dummy hanging with the noose around it overnight to take all the extra slack out the rope to make ah, doubly sure. Ah, okay. So, When I'm saying, you know, you could say, ah, well, it's not his fault if the equipment fails. It is totally his fault if the equipment Mm, fails.
0: So it's part of his job to do that.
1: But it failed three times. So three times they stood this man on the drop, put the rope around his neck, pulled to, you know, release the (laughs) trap and nothing happened. And after the third time, he said, look, this is... And to be fair to the Victorians, this is quite enlightening. They said, this is tantamount to psychological torture. You know, the guy has stood expecting to be killed three times now were commuting it. It was still life imprisonment. It wasn't like it was, oh, well, off you go.
0: <laughs> Get on
1: your merry little life. Yeah. And, yeah, everyone's waiting for the black flag to go up and instead a little side door opens and out he goes. <laughs> I, I don't know. They just told me to piss off. I'm not very angry. Um, so, so that happened. And a few months later, he managed to hang someone far too much.
0: Yeah. How do you do that?
1: Uh He a bit too much slack in the rope that was used to hang Robert Gooddale, mm-hmm. uh, and it resulted in a very spectacular decapitation.
0: Oh, as, you can, as you can imagine. Oh, my God, that must have been some like brutal thing if it's like ripped his head off.
1: Fortunately, by this time, public executions had ceased, so this was done behind, behind the walls doors. of the prison, but still, there had to be at least, I think it's three people, you needed to observe to make sure everything had been done right, as well as the chaplain and the, you know, the prison orderly. So,
0: isn't it bizarre? There was I can't a, get my head around it now.
1: Around what the
0: just public hanging or like corporate punishment?
1: Well, I believe the public hanging was for the time before you had a police force. So without oh, the deterrent yeah. of police, will catch you. It's well, yeah, we may not be likely to catch you. Uh, unless you make but, it quite obvious, but... But we'll if, kill you. <laughs> if we do, this is what happens, you know, it's that deterrent by fear rather than by policing. But by this time we had, you know, a police force, the Victorians had a prototype police force at least, and definitely yeah. in the Met, you know, yeah, they were all yeah. right. But when when you've had a year like that, where you've, you've both under and overhanged, uh, it wasn't surprising the authorities had started to be thinking, maybe we need to look for a competent replacement just in case... I think that's fair. Yeah, just in case he doesn't get over this case of the yips and he, he doesn't settle down. <laughs> so back to James and his second second guy, Hobson. Hobson had stabbed the wife of his former employer to death. That's why he was there. And this was his second hanging at Leeds, guy, uh, Leeds Jail. And again, James Billington completed his task perfectly. Brilliant. Now, the people of Yorkshire, having seen these two perfect executions, they started using James more and more in 1888. So he did a couple more, uh, and in 1889 he managed to actually only do two, but he bookended the year, which is quite nice. So he did one on New Year's Day, and then he did New Year's Eve by conducting his first double execution, which is a nice way to ring in the oh, New Year. Oh, amazing.
0: Yeah. Wasn't Jack the Ripper around in
1: 1888? Uh, I It was around the 1880s, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, actually, no, we do segue into Jack the Ripper. Well done. Very prescient, Ollie. That's... that's it's
0: almost like I knew I didn't know.
1: It's, we're bringing it in, bringing in threads, bringing in threads. Brilliant. But it seemed at this point, James had settled into the life of understudy for Barry. I'm not going to get to do as many. I'm just happy to be on the circuit. You know, mm. like a footballer playing in League Two.
0: Like a like a like a guest of the the scene.
1: Yeah, yeah. You go. You do your little thing. You're never going to make the big bucks, but it's supplementing his income from his barbershop. Yeah, he can say, "Oh, you'll never guess what my side hustle is." Uh, you know, it makes him interesting at parties. But suddenly there was a spate of four executions in eight days that changed the landscape completely. And James Billington only conducted one of them. Okay. So Berry had conducted a successful execution on the 18th of August, 1891 in Chelmsford.
0: It's two days after my birthday. Uh,
1: then, three days after your birthday, on the 19th, he did mm. another successful one in Wandsworth. But when going for the hat-trick three in a row at Liverpool on the 20th, Things did not go according to plan. Dun, dun, dun. Now, it might have been because traditionally, like I say, you sleep over at the jail where you're going to conduct the execution as the um, executioner, and you yeah. check all of the things. But this guy had darted from Chel—you know—he darted from Chelmsford to Wandsworth. He'd gone from Wandsworth all the way up to Liverpool. So it may have been that he didn't have enough time to get himself sorted. It may have been that he was just overly tired. And this is
0: pre-Premier in.
1: Yeah. It may have just been, you know, it's stress. it's got to be stressful executing a man. So sort of having that stress and that adrenaline and then just going straight on to the next one and being kept in that heightened state, by three days you're a bit fried. It may have been the cocaine wine that I assume everyone was drinking at the time. <laughs> but in Liverpool, Berry was due to execute a man called John Conway. Now John, I mean, again, probably deserved based on Victorian propriety of the death sentence, considering he'd killed a 10-year-old boy who he'd raped and then thrown the body in the River Mersey in a sack. Yeah, kill him. Mm. Uh, by the time of his execution, John Conway was 60 years old and weighed over 11 stone, which was quite heavy at the time. And Berry calculated the appropriate drop to be four and a half foot. which was quite a short, long drop. Yeah. Um, now, for some reason, the prison doctor, I'm assuming... He was all—he was a scouser. He felt he had to give his opinion on the length of drop that there should be. Okay. Uh, this is again a guy who's not actually conducted a hanging, but you know the guy's here. He's having a little bit of a chat to him, and he just gave a throwaway comment, saying, "No, it, sh- it should be six and a half foot, four and a half foot. You're not going to kill him. You need six and a half foot." You, and amazingly, rather than telling the doctor to piss off and mind his own business, Berry decided to compromise at six foot exactly. Yeah. Oh. So the person who conducted, at this time, dozens of executions had measured all of these things out and had, you know, by and large, because he'd had a few teeth and troubles at the start, but Mm. by and large had got the right things and had managed to hang people in the appropriate way, suddenly decided to add an extra foot and a half to the rope at the suggestion Mm. of this random doctor. And not surprisingly, that led to another near-decapitation. So you were talking about um, Harry Potter, nearly headless nicked this guy.
0: Ah, I love nearly headless nick. Uh,
1: Would you have liked to have met him, you know, as he was becoming a ghost? Because that's what a lot of people in Liverpool met uh, on the twentieth. No. According to the sources who were there, the pouring of the blood from the wound was so. What was the word I'm looking for? Gushing, gushing, so voluminous um, (laughs) that it was audible. What? Yeah, that's then, something
0: out of a really cheesy, like, 90s horror film. Yeah.
1: That? <sighs> one one where they had way too much fake blood, but they just thought, sod it, we're using the lot.
0: Yeah, they've paid for it in bulk. Yeah, and <laughs> every single
1: it. bit of that's going to be on the floor at the end of this scene. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, Um. and the site was described by hardened crime reporters as being one of the most horrific they had ever witnessed, and they included in that the scenes of murders that they'd been to.
0: Oh, wow. So this is like P-T-S-D kind of stuff. P-S-P? This this was, yeah. What's it called? PTSD. That's the one.
1: (laughs) This This was the case of, you know, the entire point of the execution of criminals and the way that they were doing it now with all the formalities of this, that, and the other, was to say, look, we have to execute these people to be in accordance with the law, but we're going to do it in a in a merciful way in a, an efficient way in a way that shows that we're not just seeking retribution we're not animals and then this happens and it's like oh my gentle jesus <laughs> um, oh
0: jesus wept
1: uh, probably and he was crucified even he, he was, was a bit put yeah. off when he, he looked down from heaven and saw this <laughs> dumpster so, yeah. fire of an execution yeah. like, oh that's a bit much Oh, no,
0: this is not progress. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Nearly 2,000 years. How have we only got to this stage? Right Come on, guys. Peace and love. Peace could and love. Do,
0: could do better. See me after class.
1: Talking about PTSD, though, mm-hmm. um, whether the people watching it um, experienced any PTSD, it seems that uh, Mr. Berry, James Berry, did because he only actually performed one more execution before he retired from the game completely. And that one had been sort of pre, pre-arranged before the Liverpool hanging.
0: I mean, if anyone sees that, then of course it's going to hmm. shit you up.
1: Uh, but it's weird that he managed to decapitate a man and still think, no, this is the job for me, but it was this execution where he just went, no, no, I can't, I can't do <laughs> that again. I'm too old for this. And with prescience and with a bit of fortune, just as he was going through this crisis of confidence, James Billington got another opportunity to do a perfect execution. Mm-hmm. So while um, Barry was sort of wrestling with his conscience, James Billington got in another perfect execution, which meant that when he retired, Barry, it wasn't really a surprise who was going to be offered the job next. Right. You know, he, he paid his dues around the sort of, you know, around the shires around the counties, he'd been mm. this journeyman executioner, and now he was going to get the big job, the number one position. Top dog. And his first engagement in his new role as the top executioner in Great Britain was with a man called Henry Dainton in Shepton Mallet. Um, where is that? I have no idea. I think it's in the southwest. west It's I, a believe, nice name. I believe Shepton Mallet is a place that we never visited, but was on all the signs when we were living in Malmesbury. There was always oh. a sign for Shepton Mallet, but we never found it. Maybe it's more of a state of mind than a place.
0: <laughs> it's not actually there.
1: Now, well, well, Henry, he was, he was a bit of a drinker, and he came home from the pub one day and found his wife in bed with another woman. Oh, OK. Yeah. Now, he, he hit his wife, uh, but then he, he managed to restrain himself, and he went off for a walk down by the river to think things through, call himself down, and unfortunately his wife decided to follow him. They ended up having an argument. It got a bit physical. And they both fell into the river where Henry drowned his wife. Whether intentional or not, he did. And unfortunately for that, he paid with his life. Wow. Because the execution went off without a hitch. And the combination of, of alcohol and poverty as a contributing factor to men killing their wives was unfortunately pretty much the bread and butter of James Billington's work. So there, there were interesting cases that cropped up, but for every interesting case, there were three or four drunken man comes home uh, and kills wife. It was just really uh, just a terrible indictment of the the level of poverty that people were living in. Yeah. At the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole um, uh, psychology experiment like just waiting to be done behind that, isn't there? So if you're in poverty, um stricken areas then um you're more likely to be tense you're more likely to um drink to forget your woes you're more likely to snap quicker because you've not got what you need so not that i'm excusing anyone for murdering anyone i'm just saying that there's a um a
1: lot of those de-stresses that people say you should use are just so out of reach you can't afford mm, to go on holiday even if you saved your pins so but what it was cheap at the time was gin um, so, mother's mother's ruin. Yeah, you could always get yourself some gin. Uh, and that, like you say, would help you forget a little bit. Mm. Um, and in fact, Billington had got through four more executions before he hit on a condemned person who had done something a bit, a bit more novel. Mm. This was um, a double execution where he ended up killing two poachers who had had an argument uh, with the game warden on a country estate uh, and had decided to just shoot him. Oh. So... And unfortunately, considering they were poachers they didn't then take the body home, skin it and use every part of the animal they just yeah. left him in a ditch um, oh, wow. and he was found and people sort of remembered the argument because it had been quite public um, so <laughs> they were very quickly caught and <coughs> dispatched Dispatched Billington peaked really early with his busiest month being March 1892 when he executed five people one of whom had shot his landlady for cooking a bad breakfast on New Year's Day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I shouldn't
0: he, laugh, sorry, that's awful. Even um, even
1: worse, he was so incensed by how bad this breakfast was that he actually reloaded in order to shoot the body again just to make sure.
0: I mean, to be fair, if you're hangry and someone has produced you a non-decent um, meal or the egg is just runny then i mean no, it's it's fair game
1: I, when i say landlady this wasn't a and b he was just renting a room she had no reason you know there was no sort of um contractual obligation for her to cook him a meal it's oh so she thinking, was doing it out of the
0: kindness of her because
1: oh. it was new year's day he'd had a skin full, and she thought you know what'd be nice i'll make him breakfast and
0: oh, okay right i'll retract my statement no. then
1: uh, towards the end of the same year 1892 James Billington was called on to execute Anglo-American poisoner, Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, who we actually covered in a previous episode. So if you want to pause and listen for full context, um, please do. We'll wait. Go. Welcome back. (laughs) The execution, as you've just heard on the previous episode, took place at 9am on November the 15th. And it was James Billington who then swore that Cream had used his last words to confess that he was Jack the Ripper. He absolutely wasn't. No. Clearly wasn't. And it's not just a case of, hmm, the MOs don't match. Hmm, one of them was, you know, very cold and calculating. The other was impulsive and would constantly talk about murdering people and about his love of um, pornography and prostitutes and drugs. It was the fact that Thomas Neal Cream was in Sing Sing prison in America at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders, <laughs> uh, which was—I mean—that's quite the thing to pull off.
0: Yeah, so it was—it was 1888
1: to 1891. Mm. So just he, put that on. so yeah, that's—you know—he was—he was just trying to jump into the celebrity thing. I think.
0: To be fair, if you knew that your um, uh, your life was doomed, then why the hell not? <laughs> Let's. ...become infamous.
1: But he he was also famed for lying, Thomas Neil Cream. Ah, the only thing he well. did was he would write um, libelous letters about people and try and blackmail them. What a dick. Like, the, the uh, head of WH Smith, he he wrote a letter going, I know you murdered that prostitute. Send me £20,000 or I'll expose you. And this guy was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Okay, oh, crazy man.
0: Yeah. Whatever. I, I mean, uh, WH Smith could have turned that into a, a best-selling book, to be honest. And then sold it at their own store.
1: I I don't know how big it was at this point, but he was was definitely enough that you could ask for £10,000 of blackmail and it wasn't an unreasonable sum, so he must have been doing well enough that he could vanity publish something. Yeah. And he he owns a stationer's. He's got the materials. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It took until 1893 when he was faced with the possibility of having to hang four men simultaneously that James first agreed to appoint an assistant. In the event, only two of the four, a pair of brothers, were convicted of the murder. And at the last minute, one of the brothers confessed to save the life of the other. So it was actually just a simple solo hanging. However, it was the first time that James was assisted by a man called William Warbrick. William was also a Lancashire lad who decided he wanted to be an executioner after going to watch a double hanging at the age of 19 in Liverpool. And at first, he was super complimentary about everything that James did probably hoping that he would be able to upgrade from assistant to senior executioner when James decided to retire. Unfortunately, the relationship soured when William realised that James was grooming his own sons to take over in what he hoped would become a family line of business. As a result, Warbrick's memoirs are not the most reliable source when it comes to the career of James Billington, Mm. especially as Warbrick claimed to have been present at far more than the 21 executions he actually assisted. Uh, Okay. He also recounts a story of a prisoner refusing to walk to the gallows. Sir Billington just picked him up, put him on a chair, strapped him to it, carried the chair onto the <laughs> scaffold on his own and just hung him that way.
0: Jesus. Which cannot
1: possibly be true. Because if you, you know, changing the length of the drop by half a foot could cause massive complications. Mm,
0: yeah, I suppose if he's just attached to a chair as Adding well. Adding the
1: weight that. of the chair. Yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, it's a good story uh, it was though. a great story uh but it, it just goes to show you know he william warbrick was quite fond of um hyperbole mm. uh, and you know painting things to suit suit him he's the kind mm. of guy who could spin a yarn in a pub i think uh, yeah um warbrick was definitely not present in april 1894 when james was finally asked to hang his first woman a woman by the name of margaret walber although warbrick of course claimed that he was at this execution Um, Margaret had locked her husband naked in the attic of their house for five months after catching him kissing another woman. What? And then after the five months of keeping him naked in an attic, she decided he'd served his time, so she beat him to death with the chain that she'd used to keep the door shut. (sighs) Jesus. William Warbrick was, however, back and assisting at a triple execution on June 9th, 1896. Now, two of these men who were going to be hung, Fowler and Milsom, had both been condemned for the same murder. But they'd given evidence against each other at trial to try and save their own necks, and as a result, they absolutely hated each other. So when when the two guilty verdicts were read out, they both blamed the other one for getting them the guilty verdict and actually went at each other in the courtroom, hammer and tongs, just trying Jesus. to beat the ever-loving crap out of each other. I mean,
0: you kind of would, wouldn't you?
1: And even when, um, I think it was that they went into Fowler's condemned cell and he asked if he had any any last questions or any last things that he wanted to talk about his only question was did um did milsom get a reprieve and when they said no 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 he's he's going to be executed as well he he was happy as anything he's like oh, okay no worries <laughs> so, i'm not both go bothered, down. so i'd be livid if it was just me but seeing as how he's getting it as well i can you know live with that Pardon the expression. But in order to make sure that they didn't try to have one final scrap on the scaffold itself, because that would gnaws up the hanging completely, the authorities decided to hang another person in between them as a human buffer.
0: (laughs) That poor person.
1: Yeah. Uh, This person was William Seaman, who very pleasingly had been a sailor.
0: No way. It's like it was meant to be.
1: William Seaman the sailor. Uh, However less pleasingly, he had battered an elderly Jewish couple to death during a robbery.
0: Yeah, not cool.
1: That's not cool. He apparently, he was in on the joke, though, because as he was walking up to the scaffold, he laughed and commented to James that he was just being used to keep these other two apart. So he had a a (laughs) good good sense of humour about all of these things that were going on. But with the threat of disorder and another brand new assistant to Wrangle as well as Warbrick, because they decided, if we want to get this done super quick on the scaffold, two assistants is better than one. Uh, James Billington had to just assume that Warbrick would be able to pinion the legs of Milsom who was on the end of the three quickly enough so that he didn't have to worry. It's like, you know, I'm watching the guy next to me to make sure he's doing it right. Warbrick's assisting me loads. All he's doing is pinion in someone's legs. Should be fine. Unfortunately, as it was, Warbrick fluffed his task and was still squatting on the trapdoor, messing with the straps when it opened, leaving him to fall into the pit. (laughs) Now, luckily, Warbrick wasn't seriously hurt. However, in his version of events... Warbrick's version of events this was only because he clung to milsom's legs for dear life that's a
0: scene and a half isn't it Mm.
1: so in in his memoirs he claims that he was falling head first and that he would have hit the ground like a lawn dart and broken his own neck but he grabbed on to milsom's legs right to break his own fall but of course if that was true the weight of an extra human person would surely have led to a decapitation
0: yeah yeah, and absolutely.
1: None of the reports were that Milson was suddenly headless. So it seems like this was an ex- exaggeration to try and discredit um James Billington. So look, you know, if it wasn't for my own quick thinking.
0: So he was definitely on the warpath, wasn't he? Against
1: Yeah, it was he James. was trying to do it via slander and via um you know, just just trying to suggest maybe because at this point as well, James um he gave up his barbershop business and he took to running a pub. In Bolton, I'm assuming this is because it was something that he could run from afar, whereas Barber's a bit more hands-on. Yeah. Um, But Warbrick also used that as, you know, oh, he started drinking now. He used to be a teetotaler, but the job's getting to him. And he's starting to make mistakes because I fell down the trap door. Hmm. Maybe he's not quite the uh, steady Eddie you thought he was. Maybe you need to start looking looking for who his replacement's going to be when he burns out from PTSD.
0: Yeah.
1: But regardless, whether it was due to Warbrick just fluffing his lines, whether it was due to James not paying enough attention, there was only one more triple hanging ever conducted in Britain after that one. The slander that came from Warbrick, it started to ratchet up the next year in 1897, because it was at this point that Thomas Billington, James's oldest son, started to become his go-to assistant. And Thomas had been assisting for at least three years on and off, when a Billington, arrived at Lincoln Jail on July 25th, 1899, to execute William Bell. It was not James Billington, but a man referring to himself as Billington Jr., who assured that he had assisted at many executions, and he had only come in place of James because his father was ill. Right. The authorities were happy with this, as they were aware that Thomas had been an assistant for a long time, and the execution went off without a hitch. Unfortunately, it wasn't Thomas. Thomas. But William Billington, the middle son, and a man not on the approved lists of executioners who definitely shouldn't have been allowed to conduct a hanging, who had conducted the hanging.
0: How did that happen?
1: Uh, well, once it was rumbled, William did admit that he may have lied a little and he hadn't actually been at an execution at all before. But he had been confident and it had gone okay. So what was the problem? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, You can imagine Warbrick, he was rubbing his hands at this point because he believed this would bring the downfall of the Billingtons. You know, the the scandal that some random person was able to walk in off the streets and conduct a hanging. Yeah, Uh, totally. And he was already preparing to answer the call to be the new head executioner when he found out that the Secretary of State, in order to avoid a scandal, simply added William to the approved list of executioners. And he was legally able to begin assisting his father by the October. Right. It's so like rather than admit that we made a mistake, we'll just cover fudge, it up, the yeah. paperwork, and say, "Well, yes, he's an
0: he's definitely approved." If
1: people say, uh, "You know, did did a man did an unapproved man conduct an execution on such and such date?" You're referring to a man who is currently uh, an assistant executioner.
0: Yes. <laughs> There's nothing to see here, gentlemen. Yes.
1: Don't 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 delve into my interesting wording of that answer uh, anymore, okay? <laughs> good day the, to you, sir. At the moment, he I is. I said good day. <laughs> As you can imagine, Warbrick was apoplectic with rage, and he would spend the next few years writing letters specifically accusing William Billington of working under the influence of alcohol. Uh, and like I said, he played on the fact that the Billingtons had taken to running a pub. But none of these accusations were ever found to have any merit because every time an execution was conducted, the sheriff and the um, intendant of the prison would write a report. And in none of these was ever suggested that William um, had been drunk, had been in any way unprofessional, had made any mistakes. But then the Secretary of State keep receiving these anonymous letters. And I'm assuming, you know, because Warbrick was also an assistant executioner, he was on the approved list, that he knew... Warbrick's handwriting yeah so it wasn't that anonymous
0: although Uh, you know people try and fake their own handwriting mm -hmm. but they can't do it because everyone has a characteristic somewhere along the line that they can't change
1: well weirdly the fact that he kept making completely unfounded accusations against uh, William Billington all it did was convince the Secretary of State that maybe Warbrick wasn't quite all there Mm -hmm. and wasn't the kind of person that you'd want to Put in charge of actually conducting an execution. Yeah, so a bit
0: of a fabricator.
1: What they decided to do when they when they sort of thought, well, what would be good is if instead of the next generation of executioners, we just wait for the you know the applications to roll in and pick the DIY homemade executioner who's most likely to get it right. Why don't we do some formal training and almost have this like a you know a work experience scheme where you assist and then you do some exams. And then when you prove you're competent, you go on the list.
0: So they've professionalised Yeah, the they decided
1: profession. finally to professionalise hanging. <laughs> Towards you know, the end of its life. Yeah, we're, we're sort of talking within the last, what, 60 years of hangings being a thing after well, six, centuries of
0: it. 1963, I believe, was the last hanging. All right,
1: so we're, with, we're within the last 70 years of hangings actually existing as a thing at all. Yeah. After centuries of hanging. And it's only at this point that someone's thought, hmm, maybe we should make sure the guy doing it knows how to do it. Maybe we should be assured of that before they start doing it. Yeah. Uh, And William Billington was chosen to undergo the formal training before Warbrick was. Really? Okay. Which Warbrick took as a slight, but he was unaware that the prison service had already written down that they felt he would never make it as a lead executioner, and indeed he never got the opportunity to be the person putting the rope around somebody's neck. Slander. Yeah, he, he just wasn't of the right stuff. He assisted in 21 executions, and that was his lot. He never got to... Uh,
0: I would prefer to be the assistant, I think, because then the uh, the full responsibility doesn't lay on your shoulders, excuse mm. the pun. Um, yeah.
1: But, you know, if, I think if you go into being an assistant executioner, y- your dream is...
0: To work your way up. Yeah,
1: to be the guy at the top eventually. Mm, yeah, or to at least have a go. I mean, you know, when you look back at when James started, if he'd only ever been able to do that one, he was the executioner on that one occasion, which means that on that one day in um, Leeds, he achieved more in terms of being an executioner than Warbrick did after ten years of conniving and trying to glad hand and trying to undermine and trying to do all of this
0: stuff. True. I, I, I mean, I love their dedication to it. <laughs> Like, with me, I'd be like, yeah, I, whatever, I'll I give up, done, next. But they were like, no. This is my this passion. Is, this I is want what to, I'm doing, yeah.
1: I want to execute. I want to provide the, the court's justice to these ne'er-do-wells, rapscallions and scallywags.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Now, as as we hit the turn of the century, James Billington was starting to ail with dropsy, which I believe is a form of anemia, so right. blood disorder. And he was not feeling too well in the autumn of 1901 when a regular at his pub, a man called Pat McKenna, was sentenced to be hung in Manchester for murder. The murder had actually occurred a few streets away and William Billington had been one of the first people on the scene. So it was understandable that a rumour was circulating that James didn't have the stomach to execute a person who was wrongfully being described as a close friend of his family. Right. So the local people of Bolton were saying, Ah, well, you know... James, he's, he's not going to murder his friend, is he? He's not going to kill his friend. He doesn't have the balls to do that. Hmm. And James took this as a personal attack. So, despite being deathly ill, he dragged himself to Strangeways Prison. <laughs> he was so ill. I do have the balls. Yeah, he was so ill, he couldn't even dress himself the morning of the execution. Oh, okay. uh, and he had to be assisted to dress by his new assistant, a young man called Henry Pierpoint. I like that name. Well, he, he goes on to, yeah, Henry Pierpoint. Is, is a name to remember. So he was escorted up the scaffold by Henry, like, on his arm, just to get him up there. But he did manage to hang his pub regular, because Pat had been a regular at his pub, but on the train home, he turned to Pierpoint and said, Harry, I, I, wish, I wish I'd never come. Mm. It was James Billington's last execution, as he mm. died ten days later at the age of
0: 54. That's young, isn't it? It
1: is not it It's very young. It gets worse though, because his dreams of a family dynasty of executioners didn't last much longer than he did. His eldest son Thomas died within a few months of him. William, the man who lied his way into the job, not surprisingly, got caught not paying child support and was blackballed in 1904. Wow! Because he'd been in front of the courts. So it's like, kind of, we can't have our lead executioner um, with a criminal record. That just doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't sit sit
0: right. Yes.
1: Finally, the youngest Billington, John, he'd been quietly getting in on the execution game uh, and he'd made the step up to you know fill the shoes of the three um, now unavailable Billingtons. Mm. Um, and he was preparing for an execution in Leeds on the 14th of August, 1905, when he accidentally fell through the trap door. It was very out of character for the most diligent of the younger Billingtons. And he was being assisted by William Warbrick at the time who was the only witness... Uh, I'm not suggesting foul play, but I, I am, am saying that William was the only witness um, to this unforeseen freak accident.
0: Oh, he's definitely done it.
1: It was John Billington's last execution, as he died of the injuries a few months later. No it was way. also William Warbrick's last, as understandably nobody wanted him assisting them anymore, although he did the whole you can't fire me, I quit thing. Uh, and retired
0: he sounds like a bit of a diva Mm.
1: yeah i i think he was i think it was it got to the point where it was like well if if i can't do it none of you can
0: he probably started out with good intentions and then he just became more bitter and bitter and bitter as sort of Mm. life went on as the years
1: went by and he he never got that break that he felt he deserved so
0: he he's like the bridesmaid never the bride Mm.
1: just snapped yeah so he he retired and now that he was assured that there were no living Billingtons to contradict it, the lies that he would say, he wrote his memoirs. Oh, of
0: course he did.
1: He was like, yeah. Because at this point, William had, um, he fled the country for a little while. So there was no one there to, to disprove what he was saying about this family. So he, he, could, he could write whatever, which is why he claimed, I think he claimed he was at 64 executions. So treble the amount that he attended. And he was always there at the important ones or the exciting ones. What I mean, a little fibber mention the fact that um, Billington was responsible for hanging the baby farmer Mary Dreyer as well oh wow okay yeah there were so many celebrity sort of hangings of the day that if we if we wanted to go through all of those this wouldn't be a 45 minute episode this would be like a, a five six hour episode wow
0: okay So So a lot of this was behind closed doors though, wasn't it?
1: Oh yeah, Billington never conducted a public execution, all of these were behind closed doors executions.
0: Which is probably why, I don't know, like the showmanship of it, I don't know, is that why people were attracted to it, the showmanship of it, and then that kind of died, because there'd be like hardly anyone there.
1: I don't, I don't know, maybe it's the, the thrill of having the power over life and death. You, mm, you know, you wouldn't, do, you wouldn't yeah. know how many executioners would have become serial killers if they weren't given this state-sanctioned way to, to kill people regularly. Yeah, true. And getting the same thrill of, I pulled the lever.
0: Oh, Mate, I couldn't live with it.
1: Well, you're, you just don't have the right stuff. Neither do I, luckily. But all four no. Billington executioners had been made ineligible, either by their own deeds or by death, within four years. However, James Billington's last assistant, Henry Pierpoint, would achieve James's dream of a starting a dynasty, along with his brother and son managed to carry out a very annoying 999 executions over the next 50 years. What? Just such an annoying... Do you think they would have given him one more as, like, a testimonial?
0: <laughs> no, maybe maybe they had to, like, fork out for, like, a, I don't know... Like a brass plaque if he got to
1: what, a, thousand? a
0: thousand and they were like nope definitely not spending that on him
1: the bonuses kick in yeah yeah <laughs> like when you've got a footballer out on loan and it's like yeah if he plays more than a certain number of minutes you know there's all these extras that kick in so they'll take him off at like the 58th minute of a game and you won't see him for the next two months like all oh, right okay <laughs> we are that cheap so that is the very abridged story of James Billington A DIY executioner who worked his way up from the Little Leagues of Yorkshire to play in the big time down in London.
0: Down in London 10.
1: And the main source for the episode we've just recorded was Billington, Victorian Executioner by Alison Bruce, which, although it doesn't actually say that much about Billington himself, it gives so many um, detailed descriptions of the various cases that ended with Billington that it's a really good insight into the Victorian criminal justice system and just gives a real good snapshot of like the social conditions of the time It's it's really worth a read it doesn't give you as much of the executions as maybe some people want but it definitely gives enough gore to keep you going if that's your thing just in the description of the murders it's really
0: interesting um that it's not that long ago (laughs) that all this stuff was happening in the grand scheme of history and stuff that's not i know i mean a million miles away
1: the peer points were still executing using the long drop method, the same as Billington, less than 100 years ago. I mean, mm. it's it's really, really recent history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's fascinating that um, the, the rivalry, I guess, that it was in that industry that I just wouldn't have assumed would have been there.
1: I, I think it's because it was, you know, especially at this time, there was so few hangings relatively happening that there wasn't really room for more than you apply know, one for trade. Game. Yeah, it was you know you would just have these one this one big fish in in that pond as the person, and there was a sense of celebrity attached to it. You know, sometimes when they would performed a, an execution on a particularly um, well-known villain or someone who captured the public imagination, they'd be chased to the train station. Wow! Uh, afterwards, okay. with people wanting to get the signatures or uh, journalists wanting to interview them, I believe the first time they, when they found out that Thomas Billington was doing his first assistant role with his dad there were literally like journalists running after him trying to ask him how do you feel now that you've killed a man how do you feel thomas is this is this going to be your career now are you like your dad are you, are you being groomed for greatness thomas thomas don't run away from me thomas Thomas, thomas. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh you can imagine imagine if they had like cameras and stuff like the pap
1: well, he was, he was quite proud of his job. Like I say, you know, he owned a pub and he would, you know, hold court behind the uh, behind the bar. He wasn't someone who was um, a shrinking violet about what he did.
0: Mm. It's a different time though, wasn't it? As well, like it's really easy to like judge the past through modern yeah, eyes. I, I think
1: a lot of the public were kind of behind, you know, the the death penalty still at that time. the The, the national mood hadn't changed. To I mean, you probably it.
0: find a lot of people are still behind it now, which is scary.
1: Um, and it's too good for a Marseille. Yeah,
0: I'll tell you. So my dad is um, a military man, or was a military man, and he used to crack me up. So every time someone did like the minor, like a, a minor thing that caused him inconvenience, mm. be like, "They want taken out to the sho- uh, take it out to the street and shooting. Just shoot them <laughs> for like fucking hell, Dad." Although well, like, to be fair to
1: your dad, um, I read a study on American executions, and mm. it was going through. Um, sort of each type of execution that was still on the statutes available in America and what the success rate was of a non-botched execution. Mm. And if you want to make sure that you're going to die in the cleanest way you can, firing squad is the way to go. The the top three in terms of botches in order, number one, the um, lethal injection, which apparently Mm -hmm. was the most humane. Number two, the gas chamber which again was introduced to be more humane, and number three, the electric chair. So as we've tried to be more humane than hanging and shooting that we used for ages, you know, we've actually increased the risk of something well, horrific happening to you. Let's
0: be honest, there's no humane way of killing somebody. There's it's
1: just a label that people have put on it to make themselves feel better about themselves.